You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Good morning. Good to see you. Students, I hope you've had some caffeine. We have secretly installed tasers under all of your seats. So there will be some napping this afternoon, I can assure you. So I came up here Friday night, had the privilege to come up and pray while our students were meeting. And, um, you know, sometimes it, it takes you a while to just get yourself free from the distractions of the outside and even the inside, just to really, really tune in to the, the Lord and, and feel like you can really pray. And so I'm in this room over here the other night, and I, it, it easily took me 10, 15 minutes to feel like I was finally tuned in and ready to just start interceding on behalf of these students and what God was about to do in their lives. And just right about that time, I hear, and, and I'll be honest here, I'm like, what am I here praying for? A, a rooster? Um, but then let me tell you this, 15, 20 minutes later, I was absolutely overcome uh, by the wave of praise to our Heavenly Father that came just blasting down that hallway. And um, it was very incredible. I'll move on. <clears throat> so Brett Favre, everybody like Brett Favre? You got to like Brett Favre. Come on now. Brett Favre, Hall of Fame career for the, who is he? Uh, I'm getting ready to tell you. Hall of Fame career for the Green Bay Packers, won the Super Bowl. I mean, he's the man. But the end of Brett's career in Green Bay, uh, you know, maybe could have gone a little bit better because essentially they had to kind of shove Brett toward retirement. And um, so when you retire from being a future Hall of Fame quarterback for the Green Bay Packers, if you even think about coming back to football, you know there's just one team. There's just one you can't go play for, and that's the Minnesota Vikings. It's just not a good idea. So what did Favre do? He went and played for the Minnesota Vikings. And not only that, he beat the Packers twice, um, but I think that everything's fixed and, and repaired because they, they, they uh, retired his jersey over Thanksgiving, and everybody cried and clapped, and so it's all good now. Well, in 2004, Johnny Damon was part of the Red Sox team that finally, after 86 long years, broke the curse of the Bambino, and the Red Sox won the World Series. And Johnny Damon, when that season ended, he said, man, I really, really hope the Red Sox will keep me. Well, apparently, the $40 million over a four-year period was not enough to keep Johnny, and he decided to go play somewhere else. Well, you also know, if you know anything about baseball, if you have any association with the Boston Red Sox whatsoever, you can pick any other team you want to like, to even go play for, and it'll just, it'll be fine. But not the New York Yankees. And what do you think Johnny Damon did? Watch. Johnny! Johnny! Hey, Shelly, how's it going? How are you? 
are good. Things are good. Life is good for Johnny Damon these days, and why shouldn't it be? We love you, Johnny. But tonight, it must have been a bit awkward. The former poster boy for Red Sox Nation, now in Yankee pinstripes, and a different kind of poster boy. You get a free Johnny Damon trainer poster with today's programming lineup. Damon's return to Fenway added even more spice than usual to the first meeting of the season between the Sox and the Yankees. While Damon renewed old acquaintances, the fans weighed in. Did he break your heart? Most definitely, yeah. It's really a shock to find out, and of all teams to go to the Yankees, it's sad. <laughs> Johnny Damon dumped me personally. Doesn't he like us anymore? It was all about the money, and that was the most awful thing ever. And especially seeing him in those pinstripes, it's hard. He's <laughs> Judas! He is Judas Damon! Judas! He took the money and ran! Judas! Judas! Some fans Judas! are really taking Judas! it hard, like these guys who now claim that Damon has turned diabolical. You can sign with 28 other teams in the Major League Baseball, no problem. Come back and we love you. Sign with the New York Yankees and you're an enemy forever. The dark side. That's right. The dark side. Amen. Leading off for the Yankees, the center fielder, number 18, Johnny Damon. By the way, in case you're wondering, he was booed quite loudly, but he did tip his cap to the fans and the Sox dugout. This place is magical, and the team that we had here was uh, very special, and uh, it's something that I'm always going to remember. It's pretty sad. Uh, after two days of being at Fenway Park last year and then taking the train in New York and going to Yankee Stadium, I just felt dirty. <laughs> I'm just being honest. There, depending upon who you are, depending upon where you're from, sometimes it's just a really difficult thing to switch teams. Now, imagine if you're the Apostle Paul. Puts this to shame. Last week, we opened the letter to the Galatians that Paul wrote. And Paul is defending the gospel, and he shares that this different gospel that these false teachers have come in and preached is really no gospel at all. The true gospel, it brings freedom and forgiveness. And these false teachers, they came in <clears throat> distorting the gospel, but their, their tactic, what they came in to do was discredit Paul. And here's why. The shortest route to discrediting someone's message, to discrediting a person's message, is to discredit the person. The shortest route to turning their message upside down is just to turn them upside down, discredit them. These false teachers, they knew who the Apostle Paul was, where he came from, who he used to be, his history, all the baggage that he brought with him. Let's just be up front here. He switched teams. And he didn't just go, you know, play for his crosstown rival. This guy murdered Christians and now he had become one. So he switched teams, big time. As we move on in the letter to Galatians this morning, Paul identifies the source and power of the gospel, but he does this by sharing, giving his own testimony of the transforming work of Christ in his own life. 
And, and this all, it makes more sense. It's all a whole lot more powerful when you know the story of Paul's conversion. And so that's where I want us to start this morning in the book of Acts. I want us to take a minute and just look at the story of the conversion of Paul. We're actually going to start in Acts chapter 7. And so that we, we make sure everybody understands This is a guy named Saul of Tarsus, and later as he becomes a believer and an evangelist, as he begins to walk with the Lord, he changes his name. His name is changed to Paul. But so right now, we're dealing with Saul of Tarsus. And Acts chapter 7 is the account of a young man who's part of the early church named Stephen. And Stephen was a very bold evangelist for the Lord, and Stephen was proclaiming the gospel And there were people who were Jews of the old way, Judaizers, scribes, priests, people who did not want to hear about Christ crucified and resurrected. And they finally had enough of Stephen. And so they decide to drag him outside the city and stone him to death. Look with me in Acts 7, 58. It says that they cast Stephen out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses, all the people who were there participating in this, laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. And then chapter 8, verse 1 tells us that Saul approved of his execution. And and that day, a great persecution arose against the church and believers were scattered everywhere out of Jerusalem. And verse 3 tells us that Saul continued ravaging the church. Well, now look with me in chapter 9, verse 1. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, anyone proclaiming to be a follower of Jesus Christ, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And make no mistake, what Paul wanted to do was he had the authority now to go and find believers, bring them back to Jerusalem, and kill them. Verse 3, Now as he went on his way, He approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And right then and there, couldn't Jesus have said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting, and I'm through with you. You're done. That could have been it. But that's not what he did. He said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. Now get up, enter the city, and you will be told what to do. And the scripture goes on to tell us that the men who were with Saul, were, they were paralyzed because they heard all of this, but they couldn't see anything. Now Saul literally now can't see anything because he's been blinded. And so they lead him into the city of Damascus. Meanwhile, the Lord goes to another man named Ananias. And he tells him, Ananias, I need you to go to Damascus because there's a man there named Saul of Tarsus and he's been blinded and I need you to go and touch him and restore his sight to him. 
And Ananias, in so many words, kind of calls time out and says, hey, God, are you crazy? Because I know who Saul of Tarsus is, and he wants to hunt down and kill people like me. You want me to go find him? And God reassures him, yes, that's exactly what I want, and here's why. I have set this man apart. I have set him apart to go and to preach the gospel. And so Ananias obediently goes and he finds Saul and says, Hey, Saul, the Lord told me you'd be here. I've come to touch you, to restore your sight. And Saul's sight is restored. He's baptized. And there you have the beginning of the Apostle Paul. When you read the story of of Saul of Tarsus and his conversion, you have to decide if you believe something or not. We have to decide if we believe God can either rescue, redeem, save, use anyone, or God can save and use no one. God can either redeem, save, radically use anyone on the face of this planet that he chooses to, or he can save and use no one. How how can I say that? Well, I can say that because God is either the almighty, sovereign, holy God of the universe that created it, sustains it, created you and me, or he's not. He's either God or he's not. He can save, use, redeem anyone that he chooses. Now, does that mean everyone is going to be saved? No, it does not. Because as was the truth in Paul's day, and as is still the truth in our day, there are many who reject God. As we talked about last week, to reject the salvation that Christ bought for us is to reject Christ himself. There are many who will reject God. But when we truly understand who Paul used to be, Saul of Tarsus, and when we see who Saul of Tarsus becomes, you look at that and you go, this has to be the power and the working of the spirit of the almighty God of the universe, period. Okay, so the Galatians knew this. They knew this story. They knew who Paul was. The first message that Paul ever preached when he went into Galatia or Colossae or Philippi or wherever he went was to share, this is who I used to be, and now this is who I am, and it's all because of Jesus. They, they knew who he was. So in order to attack Paul's message, in order to attack Paul's gospel, what did they have to do? They had to attack Paul. The first thing they did was to discredit Paul. And they more than likely tried to turn the Galatians' attention, not to who Paul had become, but to who Paul used to be. And they also tried to sell the Galatians on this idea that Paul was kind of this second-hand apostle. You know, Peter, Matthew, John, James, those guys, they were with Jesus. Paul, he probably just kind of got this from somebody else. They put Paul in this position where he has to defend himself. So look with me in Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 11.
Paul begins this defense. I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. This isn't anything according to man. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently. I was trying to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, when he who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I didn't immediately consult with anyone. I didn't go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. That's Peter. I went to visit Peter, but basically what Paul is saying is, look, I hung out with Peter for like 15 days. And then he says, I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Why is he telling them all this to to, to say, I didn't get the gospel from Peter, from James, or anybody else? Keep going. And then Paul says in verse 20, a very common declaration in the Jewish culture, in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Paul is saying, I'm assuring you that every single word I'm telling you is the truth. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. So as Paul begins this defense, he shares with us that we only believe the gospel because Christ reveals it to us. Paul says, I didn't get this from Peter, James, John, anybody else. This came straight from Jesus. We only believe the gospel when Christ reveals it to us. Jesus said in John 6, 44, no one comes to me unless the Father first draws him. What what we understand when we have this continuity of the scriptures is that it's the supernatural power of God that draws our hearts to Christ. It is the supernatural working of the Holy Spirit that opens our eyes and our hearts to see and to believe. And Paul basically says, you want proof of this? Look at who I used to be. If you want proof of this, look at how I used to live my life. And in verses 13 and 14, Paul is saying, hey, if you take a look at who I was, you'll kind of notice I wasn't really um, looking to surrender to Jesus. That wasn't anywhere on my agenda, nowhere at all. In fact, I was living my life to find anybody who was surrendered to Jesus, hunt them down, and kill them. Those two things are a bit at odds. Paul, his life, it was totally consumed with his religion. He was zealous for nothing else but his religion. But then, Paul met Jesus, and everything changed. He goes on in verses 15 and 16. And he makes clear, 
It's the Father. It is, it is the Father in heaven who creates us, sets us apart, calls us, pursues us, saves us, redeems us, reveals his son to us. It's the Father. God creates us. And what is our response? We rebel. And it's even in the midst of that rebellion that he, he still chooses to set us apart. He still chooses to save us. And Paul's life, it further affirms that it, it has nothing to do with our own goodness and merit. Paul's conversion, Paul's life, Paul's teaching, Paul is really not saying something new. Take a second and look with me in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 7. Let's remember what Moses told the Israelites. Deuteronomy 7 verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. You are the fewest of all people. God, Moses is reminding them, hey, Israelites, people, um, it's not because we were something special that God chose to save us, that we're bigger than anybody else, better than everybody else. No, in fact, we're quite smaller. Verse 8, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 12. In 1 Samuel 12, 22, listen to what Samuel tells God's people. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. God has always been pursuing us, redeeming us, saving us for his glory. And the Apostle Paul's conversion further affirms this. Nowhere is it more affirmed than in seeing how God chose that man, drew him in, and began to use him for the sake of the kingdom. Now you move on in the letter, verses 17, 18, 19, and Paul starts to sound a little bit defensive, doesn't he? You know why Paul starts to sound a little bit defensive? Because Paul is a little bit defensive. It all makes sense. The reason why he gets a bit defensive, though, is these guys, they've come to discredit the gospel, but they've begun to try and do this by discrediting Paul. That said, I think that we need to understand Paul's main concern was not with his popularity being fractured or damaged. It, it, he wasn't really concerned about his press. What Paul is most concerned about is the integrity of the gospel. The integrity of the message that he preached. And so his defense of his apostleship his authority. It was to defend his authority, yes. But more than that, it was to defend the integrity of the gospel that he had preached and proclaimed. 
Paul didn't care about whether or not a few people thought less of him. But he had grave concern over whether or not someone was considering the gospel to be something less than what it was. Now, interesting, the false teachers, more than likely, they, they came in and they probably used a tactic to say to the Galatians, hey, now, you know, yes, rem- remember what happened to distort the gospel. Oh, yeah, that, that message Paul preached, Jesus, crucified, resurrected, you need Jesus. But you also need these other things. To come in, they more than likely said, you know, hey, that Paul, nice guy. We like that Paul guy. But hey, just between us, we got to remember who Paul was. Y'all don't forget where Paul came from. I mean, it wasn't too, too long ago that he was hunting us down and killing us. That would have been the tactic. Remember who this guy used to be, how can we trust him? And here's what I find really, really interesting is that Paul's tactic basically was to say, whatever you do, please don't forget who I used to be. Remember, remember who I was. Because take that picture and that image, always remember who I was and and put it up next to who I have become. Because when you do that, you can't help but see it has to be the power of God. Paul just took their attack and turned it over on its head. Because, hey, remember, if, if I am proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected, why would I still be out hunting down those who also believe this? Makes no sense. Paul wasn't defending himself. He was ultimately defending the gospel, the integrity of the gospel. But understand this, you and I, as Christ followers, our integrity will have some determination on whether at times someone considers the gospel or not. And you see, this morning, there are a a, a whole section of folks that were over here as Lynn was baptized from Summit Crossing because of what God has done in the journey that he has brought Lynn on. Different people who have impacted her life, prayed for her. Dennis that was up here and baptized her. Our integrity, it sometimes will play a role in whether or not someone will, will really believe the gospel and consider it. Our conversion, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your conversion, my conversion, it should be the beginning of what we're going to call biographical reconstruction. We all know what a biography is. It's the story of someone's life. And that's not a One Direction song. That's not what I mean by this. We all are writing this story, if you will. And when we come to meet Jesus, all of a sudden, our purpose, meaning, and everything about our life, all of that changes because of Jesus Christ. And so if you're a Christ follower, I want to ask you to consider this morning, how has your story changed? What story are you writing now? Because see, Saul of Tarsus was writing this one story that said, I am all about my religion, 
and I'm all about following the rules. And if you think you can follow the rules, you're crazy. You can't follow them like me. And whoever this Jesus guy was, all of his followers, they're screwing everything up because they're leading people to believe they don't need to follow all the rules anymore. So we're just going to one by one, we're going to hunt them all down and we're going to kill them. Folks, when you look at Saul of Tarsus, the world has never known a bigger bigot or more radical fanatic. Paul was consumed with destroying Christianity. And then he met Jesus. And all of that changed. Because yes, he was the world's biggest bigot. And he was the world's most radical fanatic. But then all of a sudden, he becomes the world's boldest evangelist. There has never been a more passionate disciple maker than the apostle Paul because Paul met Jesus and his whole life took on new meaning and purpose. It was a whole new story. What about you? What about me? What story am I writing now? Go back to what I said a moment ago. God can either redeem rescue, save, use anyone, or he he can use no one. And I honestly believe that we believe this. I I, I think that we, we believe this. Now, if we do, though, if we do believe that God can rescue, redeem, save, use anyone, it changes the way that we look at people. Because we stop condemning who Paul used to be and we start celebrating and realizing who Paul is becoming. We stop looking at who this person is and we begin to look at them through the eyes of Christ and we begin to see who they could be if they just had the hope of Christ. God can save anyone he chooses. And and I believe that we believe this. I think that when we hear like the conversion of, of Paul, I think that we are most often compelled or convicted, stirred to maybe ask ourselves the question, Lord, is there somebody in my life that I'm writing off that I'm, I'm thinking, uh, they're beyond your reach. You, you just could never reach them, God. Help, help me to see things differently. And that is definitely worth our prayerful consideration. But where I want to challenge you this morning is a little bit different than that and maybe a little bit more personal. Because I really don't think that's our greatest struggle in in our faith. I don't think that, I, I think we have much less doubt about the idea that God can save anyone that he chooses. And where we struggle more is with the prospect that God can actually use someone like me. I really don't think we struggle as much with, I look around the world and, and, and I see people whose hearts are completely set against God, but I know that through the power of the Spirit that God can do whatever he wants and he can save anyone that he chooses. I believe that. That God, he saved me, he can save anyone he wants, just like he did Saul. But God, use me like Paul? 
I don't think so. He's Paul. And I think that we're tempted to, to maybe convince ourselves that that's like a humble response. I don't believe that response shows humility. What I believe that it shows is our lack of faith. Because what happens when we think this way, when we discredit ourselves, when we fail to believe that we can live in such a way that God can radically, supernaturally work in and through our lives to do whatever he chooses. When we live that way, what we're doing is we're discrediting the Lord. We're discrediting the gospel. Were we depraved, lost, rebellious sinners, separated from God? Absolutely, yes, we were. But aren't we now transformed, renewed, born-again saints, saved by God, filled with the Holy Spirit, overcomers of sin and death? Aren't we those people? Anybody? Are we those people? I think that we are, and so what it asks is, is my life look any different now that I am redeemed, transformed, born again than it did when I was chained to this old self? How does my story look any different now? But I think that we keep telling ourselves, I can't be Paul. God doesn't want you to be Paul. God may not want to use your life to save millions Maybe God wants to use you to save Lynn, to save that person that you work with, that person across the street from you. I don't know how God wants to use you, but when you discredit yourself, you're discrediting the Lord. And I have to be honest with you that there are times for me that I don't think it's rooted in humility, and I don't even know about the lack of faith. I think it's more a thing of, I can't keep holding on and being chained to my former life and also at the same time live transformed new life in Christ. But I have these moments and these days and these, these flashes where there's just this part of my flesh that maybe I just decide to drift on back to my former life. And God is saying, hey, I, I, uh, I rescued you from that. Why do you want to live condemning yourself. If you're a Christ follower, the Apostle Paul has already kind of shared with you and me how our story ought to look, at least somewhere near the end. In in verse 24, he ends chapter 1 of Galatians by saying, and they glorified God because of me. They glorified God because of me. You know what? I don't know. I don't know when your story is going to come to a close. And you don't either. Might be five days from now. It could be 50 years from now. But somewhere woven into that story needs to be they glorified God because of me. And I don't know everything that that looks like in your life or even in my own. But I want to. They glorified God 
because of me. You don't have to go from like hellacious pagan gang member to spotless little saint for God to use your life. It doesn't really work that way. Because check me if I'm wrong. Um, Any person who surrenders to Christ, no matter how things appear on the surface, that's a person that's gone from death to life. Am I right? And so that's something worth talking about. Oh, you used to be dead. And now you're alive. Thanks for sharing. How could I do that? But I think maybe we've trivialized it. No, 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 Brian, you you don't understand. I was just kind of bad. And I believe Jesus died on the cross, so I don't have to be that bad anymore. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. And you know what that is? That's a different gospel. And that gospel is no gospel at all. Because the gospel says that you and I were dead in our trespasses. And that it had nothing to do with what you and I could do. Lee read those scriptures this morning that we ought to lean on constantly in our life. It's by grace that we've been saved through faith. It has nothing to do with what you and I have done. And let me tell you, a lot of people wake up one day and they have absolutely no, no notion whatsoever of, I think I'm just going to go hunt down Jesus today. The apostle Paul was on a little trip to go hunt down Christians. And instead he met Christ. You have no idea who in your life right now God is stirring their heart and drawing them in. No one comes to me unless the Father first draws him. That's not you and I's responsibility, but it is our responsibility to live a life where somebody could say, you know what, I watched Chip, and I know, yeah, he still messes up, but I see that God is, is real in his life There's a hunger there for something more. And there's also a satisfied heart. What if we as God's people, what if we as God's church set our hearts on living these lives that would cause people to glorify him because of us? And they glorified God because of us. Friends, this, it all begins with us resting in the transforming work of Christ, that the work of salvation has already been done. And when we believe that and when we live in that, we can live lives that God will use for the sake of his kingdom. God doesn't want you to be the apostle Paul, but God does want to use you. He wants people to glorify him because of you. That's big. It's big stuff. And God is calling us into it. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, first and foremost, we just pray if there's anybody here with us this morning who is searching, seeking, Father, we 
not only pray, we believe that you are drawing their hearts to you. And we, we pray that today might be the day that they would surrender their life to you. Father, we pray this morning that you would give us new eyes and hearts as we look at other people. And God, that we would have the faith to believe that you are still about the business of pursuing and saving and transforming the people that we might be fooled into thinking are farthest away from you. Lord, we ask that you would just continue saving Saul's out there. Saul's like us. Lord, we we pray this morning that you would give us the courage to know and to believe that you desire to take our lives and use them to do the transforming, supernatural work of your spirit and your kingdom. And so, Lord, in believing that, that, that we are pursuing you, Lord, that we are building our lives upon your word, that we are resting in your spirit. In these next few moments, we have an opportunity to respond to the Lord. And I don't know how he's speaking to you this morning, but I want to encourage you to respond to him honestly, obediently. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, but you're ready, you you want to know, what, what does this mean? How can I know Christ In just a minute, some of our pastors, elders, leaders are going to be in the back at the tables. They would love to share the gospel with you. They would love to pray for you. Maybe you need to come to the the steps or the foot of the cross and just spend some time kneeling before the Lord. I don't know how the Lord will lead you, but I encourage you to respond with a heart that just says, whatever you ask, Lord, my response is yes. Lord Jesus, Your name is above all names. You are truly King of kings and Lord of lords. You're the great shepherd. And we know and we believe that your love for us is unshakable. We thank you that you've taken our broken lives and that you come and you you don't put them back together. You, you literally make them new and you fill us 
Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love. And we pray that in these next moments, through our songs, through our prayers, Lord, through our hearts, that you would be exalted and glorified. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.